Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents. I'm Howard. I'm Jess. And this week, after a much shorter dive into a lesser known story about an early American president, we are excited to share our very first guest. I recently talked to Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. Uh, she's a presidential historian and author of the book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. It's so I can't wait to hear this interview. I was way too intimidated to be part of the interview. I'm excited to hear how Howard handled the situation. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, first up. Last week, we talked about some profane parrots. Yes, which there were some, there were a lot of bird stories last week. And <laughs> about 13 hours of cut footage. It's, yeah, there's a lot of film or audio on the, the editing room floor, I hope, because there were so many birds in last week's episode. I'm hoping to move on from pets. That's all I have to say, because I love animals, but I don't know if I can take one more bird story. Uh, there are no birds in this story. I can't promise there's no pets at all, but it's not a pet-centric story. This is a season about pets. <laughs> animals are so important to our lives. They are, but we don't have any except our children. <laughs> all right, so we talked about parrots and profanity. This week, I want to look at George Washington's relationship to profanity and the most famous story about it. Okay. In a nutshell, he hated it, but he might also have been really, really good at it. Right. That's most of us. <laughs> I say that George Washington hated profanity because he actually tried to ban it during the Revolutionary War. Wow. That's worse than prohibition. Yeah. You can't make swearing illegal. People yeah. people today would not be happy with that. No. I mean, I, I don't know that it was... They won't even wear masks. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you it imagine? Like, no F words for you. It's kind of like, do you remember that book, The Giver, that you like everyone reads in eighth grade? Uh, I didn't, but wasn't it made into a movie that I didn't see? Yeah, the movie was whatever. But the book was really good because you had to speak literally all the time. Mm. Everything you said had to be literal. Okay. Like Amelia Bedelia? Kind of, but you weren't allowed to say, I'm starving, because you're not starving, really. I see. So you had to be literal. And so that's the closest thing I can think of to censoring profanity. Okay. Because it really did shape this community. Mm. I mean, into something horrific. But <laughs> so I'm curious to know what happens. Well, this is what his order said. He said, the general is sorry to be informed that the foolish and wicked practice of profane cursing and swearing, a vice hitherto little known in our American army, is growing into fashion. He hopes that the officers will, by example as well as influence, endeavor to check it, and that both they and the men will reflect that we can little hope of the blessing of heaven on our army if we insult it by our impiety and folly. Added to this, it is a vice so mean and low without any temptation that every man of sense and character detests and despises it. They're asking soldiers not to swear. I guess if you're at war in the 18th century against a global superpower, maybe you don't want to do anything extra to piss off God. I think if there's one place to swear, it's in the middle of combat, don't you? I, mean, I think that's a good place. But that said, there was one incident during the war just three years after that order was issued, that suggests that maybe even Washington himself enjoyed a good bit of profanity sometimes. It was at the Battle of Monmouth, which was just a bad time for everybody involved. All right, so it was in New Jersey, 
late June, and it's hot as hell. Like, it's so hot that some soldiers were just collapsing into ditches and dying. Oh, my goodness. George Washington's horse even died beneath him because of the oh, heat. Oh, jeez. I think it was his favorite Terrible. horse. Yes. I would have sworn then. Yeah, <laughs> and, and this isn't even it. He was already in a foul mood. And then he had to deal with Charles Lee. Charles Lee, he was a brigadier general in the Continental Army, and he had even more military experience than Washington. He was really one of his only competitors for the role of commander-in-chief, but Washington was on top and this guy was below him, and he was a character. So everybody always talks about how humble George Washington is or tried to appear to be. Charles Lee did not have any of that. <laughs> he thought a lot of himself. Okay, so he's the opposite of Washington. Basically, Very yeah. arrogant. Yes, and he, he was American, but back when we were still British, he fought with the British, and he, he'd gone all over Europe to fight. He had a lot of military experience around the world. He got in a duel in Poland where he lost two of his fingers, but then he got into another duel with that same guy and killed him. Oh, my gosh. You, so it's not an eye for an eye anymore. It's <laughs> fingers for a life. I guess. Two fingers for a life. And I don't know how you get... I, f I feel like there should be like a double jeopardy rule where you should How so? If you get in a duel with somebody and it ends, that's it. You can't get in a, you can't you can't duel, get in a duel again. with the same person. It's not fair. <laughs> Charles Lee also had a Pomeranian, Aww. Mr. Spada. And oh God, please tell me that's all you have to say about the animals. I got a little bit more about Mr. Spada. Oh, Jesus, what's gotten into you? Charles Lee would <laughs> make people shake hands with his Pomeranian. And Abigail Adams was a little weirded out by that. Okay, yeah, he sounds like a weird man. That's what I'm saying. So that's all you got about Mr. Spada? That's all I got about Mr. Spada. For you. Anyway, Charles Lee was second in command to George Washington. And Washington had given him orders to take a bunch of troops and go attack the rear guard of the British Army. Lee thought this is a bad idea, and he did not do the best job of managing this, and chaos ensued. So I'm not, I'm not a historian, first of all. And in case it wasn't clear, I'm definitely not a military historian. Okay. So my take on all of this is that some of the American troops started attacking the British, and then they ran out of ammo, and they had to go back to get more. Where were they keeping their ammo? Um, I don't know. In, in, uh, at the armory? I don't <laughs> yeah, you just said you weren't an expert on that. Sorry. Yes. Okay. But other Americans saw those troops running back from the battle, and they thought, oh, they must be retreating. We must be retreating. Retreat! And all the Americans showing up to help also started retreating. And Charles Lee was like, well, I always thought this was a bad idea anyway. This is poor communication. Definitely, yes. So when Washington came on the scene, he saw this happening. And he eventually found Charles Lee. Or Lee kind of like sauntered his horse over to Washington with a look on his face like, isn't this crazy? Look at everybody running around. <laughs> Good thing these guys didn't try to fight the British, right? Oh, my goodness. I feel that's how I picture war back then in general. I mean, how do you even organize people? I don't know. Without a loudspeaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or some kind of I don't know. They radio. Had, yeah, like I'm reading about this and it's like, and then a Pfeiffer came up to George Washington. I'm like, the person who plays the Fife is delivering news? Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what a Pfeiffer is. I, don't I think know. it's someone who plays a, a Fife. Like, I think. Is that a flute? Maybe. Sure. All right. Yeah. So Charles Lee is like, hey, here, shake Mr. Spada's hand. What's going on? Shake it. Um, <laughs> and Washington like demanded to know what is going on. Yeah. 
And the damn straight. The details of this meeting have become the stuff of legend. Hmm. This meeting that they were having on horseback up on a hill somewhere? Is that what? Yes. The best account comes from an officer named Charles Scott, who was at the battle. And Ron Cherno, he relates this story in his biography of Washington. And the way he relates it, you might think it came from a journal entry that Charles Scott wrote that day. But in fact, it came from 1860, which is 75 years later. In a book by... Why does everyone wait 75 years to talk about stuff that happened? I don't know. It was in a book by George Washington Park Custis, I think George Washington's step-grandson. And he was relating what a friend heard Scott say when asked if Washington ever swore. So this is a hell of a game of telephone. Wow. Here's what it says. 75 years later, what do you think he said? Well, it's like 75 years later, somebody is relating something they heard somebody say like 40 years earlier about events 30. It's, yeah. Okay, got it, got it. So in that book, it says, Charles Scott, it is said, was very profane. And a friend after the war, anxious to reform him of his evil habit, asked him if it was possible that the admired Washington ever swore. Scott reflected for a moment and then exclaimed, yes, once, it was at Monmouth, and on a day that would make any man swear. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir, he swore on that day till the leaves shook on the trees, charming, delightfully, never have I heard such swearing before or since. Sir, on that memorable day, he swore like an angel from heaven. (laughs) Um, I can picture this. That's quite a picture of that paint, right? What the hell? (laughs) Yes. It's so vivid, but it doesn't tell us what Washington actually said. No, apparently not. Uh, In 1885, in another book, it's said that either Scott or some other Virginian heard Washington say, Damn your multiplying eyes, General Lee. Go to the front or go to hell. I care little which. Oh, I like that. Yeah, right? That's pretty, that's nice. It's nice. Again, it's 80 years after the battle. (laughs) Right. So we don't know if he really said it. Um, Somebody who might have actually been there was definitely at the battle. Lafayette Mm. said that it was the only time he heard George Washington swear. But he said that in 1824, which is almost 50 years after the battle. And it wasn't a direct quote. It was something someone said they heard Lafayette say. And it was recounted in a book written in 1858. And he said that Washington called Charles Lee a damned poltroon. (laughs) Poltroon? Yeah. Is that a bird? It's like a coward. Okay. So it sounds like a bird. <laughs> it's one of the greatest insults. Like if you call a man a, a puppy or a poltroon, it mm-hmm. basically means like we're going to duel. Right. The only contemporary clues that we get um, are from Charles Lee himself about what Washington might have said. After the battle, he wrote to Washington and he said, look, I don't know what you heard, but it was either the misinformation of some very stupid or misrepresentation of some very wicked person that could have occasioned your making use of so very singular expressions as you did on my coming up to the ground where you had taken post. (laughs) So we don't know what those singular expressions were, whether they were shaken leaves. Or what wicked person made him say those things. (laughs) Right? Like who who could have given Washington the idea that made him... That's gonna be, that's gonna be my excuse for anything that goes wrong. I'm sorry, some wicked person some stupid made me forget. Or wicked <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I don't know what was said, but it was enough to make Charles Lee very defensive. So mm-hmm. he wrote that letter to Washington, and then after that, he challenged him. His commander, he demanded that Washington tell him what he did wrong to have justified talking to him that way. Wow. Okay. Washington was like, "You're done, son." <laughs> Charles Lee was court-martialed for disobeying orders and disrespecting his superior officer, and he never fought again. Wow. Yeah. 
So that whole situation was perceived to be a disobedience situation. Basically. and like, Even though it seemed more of a misunderstanding since they went back for ammo and then everyone went back and, I mean, it didn't seem like he directly disobeyed him. Right. And there was, I mean, historians seem to think that Charles Lee didn't really do anything that bad in that battle to warrant being court-martialed. But the disrespect that he showed Washington before during and after that. Like making him shake his dog's hand. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. No. Um, yeah, the way that he behaved, um, he was pretty turtly. <laughs> so whether or not Washington ever swore like an angel, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we know that he had a temper because some people who worked closely with him made it sound like he had a monstrous rage boiling inside of him just below the surface. Wow. That's how you describe like a serial killer. (laughs) But he also had um, this amazing restraint to keep it in check and pause and reflect most of the time, except sometimes when he would unleash holy hell. (laughs) Like Jefferson wrote that uh, Washington's temper was naturally irritable and high-toned, but reflection and resolution had obtained a firm and habitual ascendancy over it. If, however, it broke its bonds, he was most tremendous in his wrath. That is amazing self-control. Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, this idea that Washington possessed a a superhuman rage that was only matched by his superhuman calmness, (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, that's how I picture him. He had a lot of gravitas, you know? Yeah. He was human, but he knew how to keep it in check. He knew how to be civil. Yeah. And he was in charge of a bunch of folks that maybe would challenge anyone's self-resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like it. Yeah. And on the rare occasions when that rage volcano erupted, it might have spewed forth some pretty awesome profanity. <sighs> Apparently. According to Lee, he needed an apology and... Yeah. Discussion. Yeah, and Scott saying that he shook the leaves off the trees. (laughs) Well, he was very large. He was, he was. Um, You'll hear a little bit about that in the interview we're about to get to. Oh, really? Yeah. So I can't wait. Yes. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky was a historian at the White House Historical Association. Her work's been published in the Washington Post, Mm -hmm. Time Magazine, more. Uh, Her book, The Cabinet, is excellent, and it's earned some nice awards. And, like me, she's a big fan of... The Founding Fathers. Specifically, not one of them, but John one of Quincy their sons. Adams. Yes. <laughs> John Quincy Adams. Mm-hmm. Maybe more than me because she named her dog John Quincy Dog Adams. Oh, that is, I love her. Yes. I'm in love. We don't get to that in the interview. Okay. <laughs> but we, we do get to the heart of several of the early presidents and their relationships with each other, mm-hmm. and of course to Alexander Hamilton. Uh, it really felt like a master class on the personalities of the early republic. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. All right, let's get to it. All right, let's do it. Thank you for joining us, Uh, Lindsay Shervinsky. This is new for our podcast to have conversations like these, and we're very excited to be adding some of those this season. And I'm really excited to be talking to you. We have a shared passion that I don't want to get into yet, because if, if I start talking about John Quincy Adams now, we won't get to talk about anything else. That's fair. (laughs) So I want to talk about your book, The Cabinet. Now, you dig into how George Washington, he put together the first cabinet in the United States and and the personalities and the drama that went into that. Now, if someone had only seen Hamilton, the musical, which is amazing, they might remember Washington asking Hamilton, you know, treasure your state. And, And it made it look like Hamilton was 
this Game of Thrones type like Hand of the King, who was the advisor to Washington and had his pick of whatever he wanted. Can you talk about how that really went down? Absolutely. So I second your um, vote in favor of the musical because it is incredible and it is phenomenal art. And anytime art can inspire people to learn more about history, that's just such a tremendous gift. So um, that scene in particular is one that always really makes me laugh because all the evidence suggests that it's actually possible that Hamilton was Washington's second choice for the Secretary of Treasury and that perhaps he had asked Robert Morris first to be his, you know, finance minister. Robert Morris had been the finance minister during the Confederation period. It was sort of a natural carryover. Washington and Morris were very close friends. Washington lived in Morris's house in Philadelphia. He rented it from him. So, I mean, these were sort of natural votes in favor of Robert Morris. But he was very unpopular with a lot of members of Congress and was having some troubles with his own finances at the time. So, Evidence suggests that he suggested to Washington, you know, why don't you go with Hamilton? Because Hamilton and Morris had been working together closely. And that fit well with Washington's own intentions. He and Hamilton, of course, had known each other from the war, as any fans of the musical will know. There is zero chance he gave Hamilton the choice between (laughs) state and treasury because Hamilton had no diplomatic experience. He had of course, been born in the Caribbean, but hadn't been back. He certainly hadn't been to Europe. He had never served in a diplomatic role, whether it be London or Spain or, you know, France or anywhere that would be important for the new nation. And Washington's first criteria for whoever he selected in those offices were that they were experienced and knowledgeable and qualified and had knowledge and skills that were different than his own. So there was no way he would have ever been in the State Department position. Um, But it makes for a really good lyric. For sure. So that's funny to me that you have Robert Morris, somebody who who I guess was less popular even than than Hamilton. Was Hamilton divisive at that time? Or did that sort of develop later? Well, he was certainly um, a polarizing figure. He wasn't he wasn't divisive. And he wasn't as hated as he later came to be. He had made some rather outlandish suggestions at the Constitutional Convention, and had spoken for I think it was like three hours saying what the government should be. And as a young sort of upstart person from New York, a lot of people sort of raised their eyebrow at that presumption that he could lecture people for three hours. But he wasn't hated in the way that he later came to be in terms of his financial plans. Whereas Morris, because he had been the finance secretary for so many years, those divisions were already very set in stone and people were very mistrustful of his financial intentions, whereas that same suspicion wasn't yet there for Hamilton. Yet. Okay. So speaking of of Hamilton and Jefferson... Now, I know in the beginning, Washington, it sounded like he was almost bragging about how harmonious this this group of people he'd put together were for his cabinet. And that changed over time, for sure. Can you kind of take us to, I think it was the summer of 1793 that you talk about in the book, where things just kind of maybe really came to a head? Yeah, so I should I should start a little bit earlier just because I think the background is important. When Hamilton and Jefferson both get into office, Jefferson doesn't take office until March of 1790. They know each other, but not particularly well. They'd only met a couple of times. And they did have very different views on everything, whether it be which country they should be allied with. 
where the executive power should be, who was the ideal citizen, you name it, they disagreed. But it was a fairly harmonious disagreement initially. Over the course of 1791 and 1792, as Hamilton puts forth a series of um, financial legislation, he and Jefferson start to really clash. And Jefferson starts to take a more proactive approach to undermining Hamilton's position, usually with Madison's assistance and sort of his role as behind the scenes. So they're already sort of getting to that point, and they don't really like each other, and they don't really trust each other, and they're starting to sense that both people are doing these sort of nefarious things behind the scenes. But in 1793, you're right, it comes to a head, because whereas before they met occasionally, and they socialized occasionally, in 1793, they couldn't get away from each other. Because the neutrality crisis broke out when France declared war on Great Britain, and all of a sudden, Washington convenes 51 cabinet meetings in a year. And that's the high watermark for the cabinet, but it also means that Hamilton and Jefferson are locked in the same room with each other up to five times per week, sometimes for several hours a day. Most of these meetings are taking place in the summer in Philadelphia, where it's wicked hot and you know just like it is today. And at this point, they come to really despise each other. They hate each other. They hate everything about each other. And I think that those cabinet meetings sort of served as a hothouse of political tensions, if you will, and just made everything so much worse. So who who's in the room? Do we have Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson? Was Knox there? Like what? Before then, it seems like everything was in writing or they wanted it to be in writing. What kind of brought them together in one room? You said the the neutrality crisis. What I'm I'm just wondering like after the first few sessions, why did they keep going? Like what was working or wasn't working to to keep them coming back in that room? Absolutely. So, um for the first two and a half years of Washington's administration, he relied solely on written correspondence and one-on-one consultations. The issues that they were dealing with were incredibly complex and often precedent setting. And so writing all of those details out back and forth was incredibly time consuming and sometimes very inefficient. Um, So Washington developed this practice where he would send a letter back and forth and then the secretary would come and meet with him and they would nail out any remaining details. And that worked really well for about two and a half years. Washington started convening cabinet meetings when he realized that there were certain issues like the relationship with France that touched on multiple different departments. So if you're talking about a trade and diplomatic relationship, that's going to touch on the Department of War if things go badly. Of course, it's going to touch on the Department of State. It's going to probably touch on the Department of Treasury if you're talking about trade arrangements. And then if it's a legal question, the Attorney General needs to be there. So Washington realized that some of these issues really can't be handled one-on-one because so many people's input is required, and it's much more efficient to have all of them in the room than to do four separate meetings. So in 1793, what happens is he starts to call the cabinet together, and you're right, there were, so there's Washington and four other guys, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of War Henry Knox, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph. Most of the time, all four were there. There were some instances where Randolph was out of town and they would make a decision and then Washington would convene a meeting as soon as they came back to make sure that Randolph agreed with their legal interpretation. The reason that they had to meet so many times, especially given these meetings were so unpleasant most of the time, (laughs) was because they were trying to basically establish what it meant to be a neutral nation 
in an international conflict. And that involves a lot of very complicated questions. It's not just declaring neutrality and everything's fine. There is, you know, what happens? How do you proclaim that to American citizens? What happens if they don't comply? Who is going to, what law are they breaking? Who is going to arrest them? Which court is going to hear this decision? Um, you know, who is going to implement the punishment? These were just a couple of the domestic questions. And then the legal questions were, for the diplomatic side, were just as complicated because of this thing called privateers. Now, privateers were private ships that were sailing under basically a license from a foreign nation to go attack that foreign nation's enemies. And this was very common practice in 18th and 19th century warfare. Everyone did it, including the United States. But how do you govern privateers that come into American ports? If you're neutral, what do you allow them to do and what do you not allow them to do? This was very complicated. It was made more complicated by the fact that the French minister kind of disregarded everything that Washington was saying. And so it was, you know, happily arming privateers and sending them out to attack British ships, which did not go unnoticed by the British minister who was also in Philadelphia. So they were basically meeting many times a week to try and figure out all of these questions, all of these details. And Congress was out of session. So they were also trying to do it by themselves. In what ways did that exacerbate the kind of the the birth of their nascent like two-party system? Well, like I said earlier, they disagreed on pretty much everything. So I think that there would have eventually been two parties no matter what, because there were just two really different visions for what the country was supposed to be. And I don't think there was any way that that was ever going to not come to a head. I think that their constant participation in these cabinet meetings together convinced both Hamilton and Jefferson that the other was a threat to the future and the security of the nation. They became convinced that the other person was a mortal enemy and that something had to be done to preserve the country. And I don't know that they would have felt that strongly that the other person required, you know, immediate action to try and undermine their abilities had they not been together so frequently. So I think it really sped up the process of the political parties, and it exacerbated the existing tensions in a way that wouldn't have happened had they not been together so much. But I don't think that it created something that wouldn't have been there already. Okay. Yeah, that that strikes a nerve in me. I, I remember, like, working at summer camp, there was no TV. We were our own entertainment, and we created our own drama. And when there was an issue, it was like, what? We got to do something. So I can totally see how it's like Big Brother or some reality yes, show. Exactly. Everything just comes to a head. People stop being polite and start being real. One other person I want to ask about who you you briefly mentioned that wasn't officially part of Washington's cabinet, James Madison was really friendly with Washington. He was ghostwriting Washington. He was ghostwriting the House response. Was he ever in consideration for something besides the House of Representatives? Do you think Washington would have asked him to be part of the cabinet if he weren't part of that? That's a really good question. So I haven't found any documentation that he was in consideration for a different position because I think of the timing. So it's really important to remember that the Constitution mentions the executive departments, but doesn't actually create them. And they were created by the first federal Congress in the summer of 1789, of which Madison was an essential part. And I think at that point, he was almost serving as an unofficial prime minister. He was meeting mm. with Washington quite regularly and frequently talking about 
what Washington's wishes were and then would kind of go and present them as his own in Congress. And everyone kind of knew that they actually were Washington's ideas. And I think that they both really valued that relationship as a way to make sure they were on the same page about getting things done, including the executive departments and the Bill of Rights and the title for the president. And so I don't think that either of them thought about a cabinet position because they wanted to maintain that tie between the presidency and the House of Representatives. Sneaky. Yeah, very, very sneaky. (laughs) Very (laughs) sneaky. Not so much with the the balance of power there um, or the separation of powers. Um, But what I think is fascinating, you know, as an interesting hypothetical, by the time Washington has convened his first cabinet meeting in November of 1791, his relationship with Madison has started to deteriorate because Madison has basically set himself in opposition to so much of Hamilton's financial plans and continues to do so over 1792. And so had that not happened, had that break not been there, I have no doubt that Madison would have become the second Secretary of State. Or Mm. um, I do wonder if Washington might have added him to the cabinet or invited him to some of the meetings to talk through some of these things in an unofficial capacity. No way to know, of course, but it is an interesting hypothetical to sort of think through. Yeah. So speaking, like, Washington had this experience leading as a general and and soliciting information from others. That seems like a very different background from the second president, John Adams. Now, I know that Washington got to choose his cabinet members, the official ones. He didn't get to choose the vice president. Can you talk a little bit about John Adams's role in the Washington administration or the cabinet? Yeah, so and this is something I've been reading a little bit more about as I've been coming at the administration from John Adams' perspective. He was in a very strange position because at that point, the vice president actually attended every session of the Senate, and he had to request permission to basically leave when he wanted to go home early. So he was there every day, and that was his main responsibility. He was never invited into the cabinet. Washington never included him. And there are two hypotheses about why. Some people think that it's because Washington was very concerned about that separation of powers between the Senate and the presidency. I find that argument a little bit less compelling than the second, which is that John Adams just, he kind of clashed with Washington. They never didn't get along per se, but they didn't necessarily get along well. And I don't think Washington trusted his judgment. I think especially after 1789, when John Adams had advocated for a very elaborate and uh, some might say pretentious title for Mm. the president, which was, I think, his highness and elective magistry protector of our liberties, something like that. Yeah, Um, yeah, it was very, very Game of Thrones. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue, uh, needless to say. I think that Washington just didn't really trust him and didn't trust his judgment and didn't want him in the cabinet. So he was in this very bizarre situation where he was very much outside the halls of executive power. And yet he was, of course, the number two. He frequently attended events at Washington's house. I found a week in 1796 where he was there three times Mm. for a event on Monday and a levee on Tuesday and a dinner on Thursday. And so he was very much a part of the social circle and very much a part of that elite governing crew in Philadelphia, and yet was very much on the outs. Yeah, that that had to be an interesting kind of line to walk. Like, 
<laughs> well, yeah. and I can imagine no one hated it more than John Adams, who really liked to be at the center of things. And, he, you know, for all of his faults, of which there were many, he did have a lot of uh, intellectual abilities. He was a brilliant man and a brilliant political theorist. And his intellectual capacities were not in any way challenged by the role of vice president. Hmm. I, recently, I've been thinking about Washington and how he very much seemed to resist the role of president and say, I don't want it, I'm going to turn it down. And Adams, on the other hand, without like coming out and saying it, it seemed like he almost thought he deserved it for his hard work. Does that make sense? Am I reading into that? Yeah, I mean, so I would I would add some nuance to both. I think that Washington <laughs> absolutely did not want to serve. He was tired. Men in his family had very little longevity. So he firmly believed he was going to die at any moment. And that wasn't hyperbole. He wasn't, you know, a hypochondriac. He actually thought he was going to die at any moment. Unlike and Madison, who <laughs> who thought he was going to die and then outlived everyone. <laughs> Kept living. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he didn't live that long. He died in his 60s. He wasn't that old. Um, so he really wanted to be home. He had been home for one night in the entire Revolutionary War. And he wanted to stay at Mount Vernon. He didn't want to serve. He was deeply worried that his reputation that he had spent so long building was going to be tarnished by his any more additional political service. So that was 100% genuine. And yet, um, it was also expected that you were supposed to say you didn't want the positions because that was how politicians were supposed to act. And he firmly knew that no one else could fill that role. No mm. one else could be the first president. He was, I've gotten into some arguments with Ben Franklin fans. That <laughs> some people think he's the most famous American. I argue that George Washington was the most famous American. Either way, he was certainly the only contender because Ben Franklin was so old at that point. And there was no one else that could have filled that role. And so I think that he had this deep conviction that it was him or the country was going to fall apart. Mm. And I think he was right about that, actually. I don't think that that is too much, you know, self-congratulations. Um, now, John Adams was a little bit different because he had served just as long as Washington had. And he had a very large chip on his shoulder about <laughs> the fact that Diplomatic service was not recognized and appreciated in the same way that military service was. That's not to say it didn't come without its hardships. He, you know, was away from his family for years and years and years and years. Some of the places he stayed were really bad for his health. Atlantic travel was very dangerous. Yet it wasn't a war. So I don't know, you know, kind hmm. of a toss up. We can make a decision about that. But he had served just as long. So initially, I think he was very gratified by the number two position because he literally thought it was the number two position. And then he became aware over time that it was, you know, a, a politician in the 20th century said it wasn't worth a warm bucket of spit. Hmm. I think he actually used a different word at first and then made it more polite. Um, and he became aware that that was sort of the reality of the situation. So there's this dynamic in 1796 when he realizes that Washington is going to retire and he goes back and forth between really wanting the presidency and feeling like he is the heir apparent and he deserves that space and thinking, well, maybe I should just go home and I would be happier as a farmer. And that dynamic exists in, in Adam's mind from 1796 until 1801 when the decision is made for him in the second election that he stands for and he does go home and becomes a farmer. And I actually think that his retirement is some of his happier years, but he definitely had more of a internal struggle than Washington did. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
and, and I think about comparing the two of them, it seems like they both had a temper that came out maybe <laughs> in different ways. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how maybe for Washington was a little bit of a temper an asset in his image, in his role. So they definitely did both have a temper. They were um, very strong, opinionated men who were very concerned about their honor. Washington did a really good job of locking down his emotions 95% of the time. (laughs) And so he had this sort of persona of being very aloof and um, reserved and very gentlemanly. And that was very cultivated and that was very respected at the time. People thought that, you know, proper gentlemen should sort of be reserved in that way. So when he did blow up, I think it had such a tremendous impact on those around him because they were so used to him being reserved. And he did, you know, he was a very big man. He was a very imposing man. He really packed a punch in terms of his stature and how he filled the room. And so for someone like that, with his reputation to be angry and yelling at you, I think it probably was a sight to behold. Um, those who observed it never failed to comment on it, which suggests that it was truly a remarkable occurrence. Whereas John Adams kind of couldn't help but put his foot in his (laughs) mouth all the time. And it, I mean, one of his greatest qualities was that you kind of always knew what he was thinking because he told Mm. you he was terribly honest, even when he shouldn't have been. And so when he was mad, he said so. And when he didn't like someone, he said so. And that just doesn't, I think, have the same... Same sort of gravitas to it that Washington did. Yeah. Um, So John Adams comes from a place of being kind of locked out of Washington's cabinet. And then he finds himself as the president. And he, he makes the decision to keep the current members of Washington's cabinet. How did that turn out for him? Uh, Yes. So this is one of the puzzles that I'm currently exploring. And... Gosh, I wish there were more documents. I wish that people wrote down more of what they thought. It did not turn out well for him at all. Um, From what I've been able to garner thus far, he felt like he had to, because if he dismissed someone that Washington had appointed, it would have caused an uproar. And he didn't have any objection to any of the people in office. And he even knew some of them and had known them for a while. So he felt like it would be fine. He felt like it would be fine, especially because he had a sense that people should respect and be obedient to the office of the president. And the these were men of honor, and so they would be dutiful to the office. He didn't think that they needed to also be dutiful to him as a person. That was a grave miscalculation because they mm. were deeply, not all of them, but most of them were deeply loyal to Alexander Hamilton. They were high Federalists or the more extreme wing of the Federalist Party. And from basically day one, they were taking orders from Hamilton and sending him, you know, updates before they sent them to Adams, sharing state secrets and letters with Hamilton. Often Hamilton would write something and they would just copy it verbatim into their letter of recommendation to Adams. And that really came to a head once they differed. Initially, it was kind of fine because everyone was on the same page. But once they began to fracture over foreign policy and Adams really wanted to pursue peace and Hamilton was dead set on war because that would give him his desired and glorious army, 
then that really became a problem. And they started to undermine his foreign policy in a way that was very detrimental to both his reputation, but also I think his reelection chances, because while peace was eventually achieved, Adams was very determined about this. The news of the treaty didn't arrive until after the election in 1800. So in the election season, Hamilton published a very scandalous, very critical pamphlet listing all of the things that Adams had done wrong, which obviously didn't go over very well. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I've read that pamphlet and it's it's <laughs> such a fascinating pamphlet that that Hamilton did. And it it seems like he did not have the best track record with pamphlets. As far as what they did for his (laughs) reputation. (laughs) No, um, the ones that he signed his name to didn't go well for him um, at all. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, a lot of his contemporaries at the time urged him not to publish it because they felt like it was so full of vitriol that it was going to reflect poorly on him as opposed to just poorly on Adams. And it did. A lot of people saw it and they were like, oh, like, that's one step too far. That's like, that's too much. Not unlike when politicians today go after someone's family or someone that's not running for public office. We say like, those people are not, those are not public figures. That's off limits. And that was exactly most people's reactions at the time. Cause it was just, it was too much. It was way too much. And it is, um, you know, you can see if you look at the conversations that Hamilton had with Adams before this happened. They have this massive breakdown in their relationship in 1799. Then in 1800, when Adams fires a bunch of secretaries and blames them for being in cahoots with Hamilton, which they were, um, you can see that Hamilton is like so insulted that someone wouldn't listen to him and someone wouldn't take his advice. And so, so much of his criticism of Adams is that Adams is too independent, which is kind of exactly what you actually want from a president. You don't want a president that is being told what to do by, you know, a person who's not in office. So it's a it's a very interesting dynamic. I mean, I get that. Like, I want people to be independent as long as they agree with me. That seems like <laughs> the thing to be. Exactly. Exactly. Um, can you talk a little bit about the book that you're working on now? Yes. So... I spent the last eight years trying to convince everyone that Washington was so important and the first cabinet and the first administration were essential, which I still believe that they are. I am now going to spend the next several years trying to convince everyone that the second was just as important as the first. And here's why. So much of our political system is still governed by norm and custom and not written down. And we, you know, look at the presidency today And when we're shocked that someone does something, I get questions all the time, can the president do that? And I say, well, it's not written down that he can't. There's very little statute or legislation that governs presidential behavior. It's just based on what we expect. That has to start somewhere. That uh, repetition of behavior has to start somewhere. And so much of what we give credit to Washington to, had Adams not continued it, it wouldn't have happened. And it would have been an interesting little relic that, you know, Washington did and how funny and how interesting. And then it stopped. And the cabinet is a great example. Adams didn't have to govern with a cabinet. He could have very easily had the executive departments, but, you know, tried a different form of advising or worked with someone in Congress. And he didn't, partly because of the power of Washington's example, but also because he wanted to provide continuity and stability at a time when people were very nervous. He also establishes some 
very essential legal precedence over the power of the executive branch when he fires secretaries and goes through those motions. So I'm going to write um, history of Adam's presidency on shockingly, despite all of the work on the founders, there's only one book on his presidency that was written in the 60s, I think. And it's called John Adams presidency, the collapse of federalism. So it looks at the collapse of that party And most biographies um, of John Adams that take his entire life, they tend to give like one chapter to the presidency or they kind of skip over it or dismiss it because it's considered the nadir of his public service. And I don't think it is. I think, yes, it was not necessarily his favorite public service, but it was essential and it was essential for him and it was essential for the country. So that is the story I'm telling. I'm so excited to to be able to dig into that when you write it. I might be wrong, but I, I thought at one point you had written that the the plan of the book might incorporate both Adams and Jefferson's <laughs> cabinet. And that makes me think of David McCullough, who who set out to write, he said, about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. It, it sounds like there's not a curse, but when someone maybe goes about that, they just fall in love with John Adams. But I mean, I hope you have a third book that, that talks about Jefferson's cabinet. <laughs> um, well, so the third book probably won't be on Jefferson's cabinet. I do have an article in the Journal of the Early Republic that does focus solely on Thomas Jefferson's cabinet. Um, I did not know that about McCullough. That's very good company to be in. I did intend, uh, when I first started, to write the story of both. And as I continued to work on it, I realized that that story really wasn't as compelling because all of the drama happens in Adam's Mm -hmm. cabinet. And his huge contribution is that he preserves the presidency and hands it to Jefferson in one piece. And Jefferson gets a clean, fresh slate because Adam's cabinet was so bad (laughs) that Jefferson gets to do whatever he wants. And he ends up creating this extraordinary cabinet. But an extraordinary cabinet is like without the drama is kind of boring. So I was really struggling to figure out the narrative arc. And I like to write stories that are easy to read. And if there's no narrative arc, then it's just boring. And so I was struggling with that. I was, you know, really going back and forth. And so finally, you know, I have a, I have actually a, a writing group with other authors and they were like, why don't you just nix the Jefferson part? Now he's not totally nixed. Um, I should say that he is, he is involved in two ways. There will still be a very lengthy epilogue, not lengthy, hefty epilogue, um, that does address how he was able to take what Adams left him and create this extraordinary example of a cabinet, because he did have an extraordinary cabinet. And he is a phenomenal eyewitness to all of the drama that is happening in Adams' administration, and a very colorful commentator, even if he sometimes lies, and he does sometimes lie, but he he provides excellent commentary. So he will very much be a figure, but he will not be as central a figure as I expected. And I think that also serves me well, because I find it really hard to spend several years on someone that I don't like as much. And um, (laughs) here's the thing about Jefferson. I can talk all day about why he's important. I can talk all day about his impact and his influence on the creation of the nation and political culture and legacy in American history. But I also don't really like him. He just kind of was a jerk sometimes. But Adams was a jerk in a way that I find quite lovable. So I just don't totally know what to make of that. But I decided that I wasn't going to force myself to write about someone I didn't really want to write about. 
No, I, I totally respect that decision and going where the story takes you. That, that sounds really exciting for you and for readers. Definitely. I think it will be a much better story. I think readers will appreciate it a lot more and hopefully will agree with the choice. I look forward to it. And speaking of John Adams and knowing all about him and his honesty, so much of that is because he preserved his letters and his diary entries. And he instilled that into his son, John Quincy Adams. And if you could talk a little bit about what is it that you love about John Quincy Adams? And is there anything that we can learn from him? Oh, there's so much. So what I love about John Quincy Adams, first of all, from a historian perspective, was that he wrote everything down and did so in spectacularly snarky fashion, (laughs) which makes for really good reading. Um, His diaries are hilarious. And he was very sarcastic and very dry, especially with himself. He was very self-deprecating. I should note that the Massachusetts Historical Society actually just made 500 pages of transcriptions available of his diaries. So even if you struggle with cursive script, you can now read them and they're amazing. That so is, it, his- it's so great. I've just been digging yeah. into them. Like I'm the kind of person that will go in there and, and type in a word like accident and then just see all the little stories that come up and, and go through that. I, I mean, his diaries, you get to see him from like 11 or 12 or something. And then all the way through his life, you get to see him kind of evolve from Holden Caulfield to Larry David. He's like this fun curmudgeon. And you get to see all these sides of him. Well, and I think so that was the second part of from a historian's perspective, I was going to say is that his life basically parallels the creation of the American empire. And his story really starts when he's watching Bunker Hill with Abigail from like a neighboring Mm. hill, watching this battle happen in real time. He then, you know, goes to Europe. He's in every major city when he's 12 with his dad. He speaks a trillion languages. Um, (laughs) He, you know, witnesses all these extraordinary things happening. He's a part of some of the biggest diplomatic moments in early American history. He comes back. He's a senator. He's a secretary of state. He's a president. And then he goes back to the House and he serves in the House for I don't know how many years, but it's a very long time. And when he dies, he can see the Civil War coming and he's doing everything in his power to stop it. So his breadth of experience is such an incredible way to examine the United States. What I love about him personally, there are so many things, but personally, Um, His curmudgeonly nature appeals to me. Um, His desire (laughs) to always be improving himself is something that I sympathize with. Uh, The perfectionist nature is something that I can see and identify. I love that he had such a deep conviction of service, but also such a sense of humor about it. So when he was in Congress after his presidency, Many of the Southern congressmen, senators, and representatives would challenge anyone who mentioned slavery to a duel or would threaten them with physical violence. But they couldn't challenge him because he was the former president and he was the son of a former president. He had such stature that like no one could touch him. And he knew it. He (laughs) knew that he was bulletproof. And Joanne Freeman in her book, Field of Blood, has a whole chapter on him that he used that stature to great advantage and just tormented them. And I can just tell that he loved doing it. And so that's just to me is so funny. Um, Yeah. I also think the last thing about him that 
we can learn from is he didn't ever stop evolving. So when he was Secretary of State, he regularly socialized with people like John C. Calhoun and James Monroe, and regularly was waited upon by enslaved individuals. When he was in the White House, his niece and nephew lived with him, and they owned two enslaved individuals that were also at the White House. We don't know what they were doing there. My guess is they were working. And at some point, one dies, the man dies, and then the woman is freed when right before the daughter marries into the Adams family. There's some question that maybe he said you had to manumit this woman if you're going to marry into the family. But for several years, he had enslaved labor at the White House. Later, he, of course, becomes this incredible abolitionist. That evolution doesn't happen by accident and is very intentional. And so I like the idea that we never stop learning, we never stop getting better, we never stop improving. And he's, I think, a fantastic example of it. Yeah, that definitely resonates. And he he lays it all out there. That's and, and there's things that I really, I, I don't like about him personally, but it, it just makes him a more well-rounded person. Like, it sounds like he was not the best husband. No, he could be very cruel. And part of that is because we get to see his own perspective, but we also get to see the letters of, of Louisa Adams mm-hmm. um, because those were preserved. And it just, it paints such a picture of their relationship and, and Washington at the time in the world. And yeah, such a treasure that we have those documents. Yeah, I highly recommend if anyone has the opportunity to go to the Massachusetts site, the two Adams sites, uh, it's a National Park Service site, you can see both the places where they were born, but then also Peacefield, which was the home that Adams retired to, and then John Quincy Adams inherited. And the houses are such an incredible manifestation of their understanding of history and legacy, and their family's role in those things. We might call it hoarder-ish, but as historians, (laughs) I so appreciate that they had such a keen sense of their role in the story and preserved everything, including all of the letters. And and thank goodness they did, because we would not understand these relationships like we do if they had burned letters like Martha burned George's Mm -hmm. letters after he died per his request. And I should say, Abigail made the same request and John just disregarded it. Bless his heart. I'm so glad he yeah. did. Um, but you know, I think it's just it's a it's a tragedy because we don't we don't know her role in the story. Yeah, and sometimes I wonder if seeing that the personal side of maybe Thomas Jefferson might add a little bit more nuance to his story because he he kept so many non private letters, mm-hmm. but the private stuff was all kind of jettisoned. And because there's enough for me to not really like a lot about him personally as well. But I sometimes think that's because some of that personal stuff is missing. Like his letters to uh, Mariah Cosway paint a different picture of him. Mm -hmm. And we don't see any of those uh, letters or anything with his wife. And maybe there weren't that many because they weren't separated in the way that um, John and Abigail Adams were. Yeah, I mean, it would have been, I think it would have certainly helped to add nuance to his character and his personality and probably some warmth. If we could have had those letters, there certainly were some. Um, when he was at the Constitutional Convention, he was away from her. She wasn't there the whole time. And and that would have been really interesting. I think especially, Mm. usually we see sometimes that warmth with children, but he had a very manipulative relationship with his daughters. And it doesn't really help his image. So I think it would would be really nice if we could know that. Um, Unfortunately, we really can't. One last thing that I wanted to ask. 
I know that not too long ago, uh, President Biden had sort of a little summit of historians there to talk about like big ideas and, and get perspectives from the past. If he were to do that again, and you were invited to the White House as a historian, what would be on the top of your list of things to communicate as far as how to accomplish big things? Yes, this is a really good question. Um, and I'm very happy to talk to any president that wants to talk. Um, I will happily be there. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I do think that the message, I, I think the message that was conveyed was that, you know, going big is almost never a bad thing. Um, being bold, taking bold action is usually rewarded. I would agree with that. I would encourage that. I think that there aren't too many examples of presidents taking bold action and regretting it. But one of the things that I think I've discovered as I've been examining cabinets in the past is that the cabinet is an opportunity that presidents so often overlook. It's a way for people to be brought together. It's a way for different perspectives to be heard. It's a way for the president to build coalitions and ideas. And I think Biden is taking advantage of that and is is doing well with that. I would encourage him to continue to do so and use the cabinet for all that it's worth. And it has a lot to offer, both in terms of congressional liaison, but public outreach and programs and diversity and all of those things. I think he's on the right track. But to not give up on that as there is turnover, because there is always cabinet turnover. So, you know, continue that process, continue to see the cabinet as I think the heart of the presidency, which um, I, I still see it that way. And I would encourage him to do so too. Nice. I know you've got some podcasts, you've got the book, The Cabinet. Where can our listeners find more um, from you? So I have a website. It's lindsaychervinsky.com. My last name starts with a CH. Even if you butcher it, you'll find me because there's no other one. So um, that is my website. I am very active on Twitter. My handle is lmchervinsky. You can sign up on either for a newsletter. I send out a an essay once a month, but it also has links to all of the podcasts that I'm on and the op-eds that I write and articles, things like that. It's a good place to stay in touch And then I also have a podcast called The Past, The Promise, The Presidency, which I co-host with the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Season one looked at the history of race in the presidency. Season two will be looking at presidential crises, and that will be starting to come out in the fall of 21. So you can catch up on season one now and uh, get ready for season two. Nice. Well, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to have you back when the second book comes out or sooner just to talk more about the Adams family. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Wow. I am so blown away by her. Lindsay Travinsky just blew my mind. I First of all, I love her for so many reasons. She was really speaking my language. Um, first of all, Jefferson being an unpreferred topic for her book. <laughs> I mean, I respected that decision making, but I also respected that respect for herself, you know what I yeah, mean? And, I, I and loved, what she wants to write on. Yeah, I love the insight into the book writing process. Too. Yeah, I loved that. How she's thinking, not only in terms of writing a history book, but in terms of writing stories and looking at the character arcs. And she even helped me understand, you know, why you love John Quincy so much, even though you've written in your blog about it yes. <laughs> endlessly. Yes. I think she really helped me understand that he's very similar to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the realization I had as she was talking about him. 
Um, you love reading him. You love reading yeah. him. He's a good read, she said. I think that's one thing you love about him. It's snarky. Like, it, the snarkiness, the sense of humor he has as he's taking his job very seriously just sounds a lot like you. Huh. <laughs> I'll, I, I'll take it. I like. Um, I also loved. How, I, I mean, I could go on and on about what she said, but I loved how she talked about Adams being lovable despite his poor attitude and his errors and choices. Yes, um, yes. He's, a, he's in, a jerk in a lovable way. Yes. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed her interview. I thought you did great. I could hear your nerves a little in the beginning. Oh my just goodness! Because I knew you. I know you. I, I used to know you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you at one point in time. I knew that interviewing would be hard. You know, everybody says. It's hard. It's a skill, and it takes practice. And I, I really got to experience that, mm-hmm. and and feel in the moment like, wow, I wish I were better at this. Thankfully, I lined up some great folks who are professional speakers, and there's only so much damage I can do. <laughs> I thought you did great. I mean, you are also a good editor, so I don't know yeah, what yeah. really went down in that interview, but <laughs> <laughs> the the full video of the interview is available for our patrons. Who will see um, just how much of my stammering was edited? <laughs> how much sweat was dripping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends, spread the word. Check out plodpod.com for more info about our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Check out some of our brand new merchandise. I am so excited about the merchandise. And I have to apologize in advance because I said I was going to play like this big role in the merchandise because I'm creative like that. But... I've been busy. So Howard has not only been writing the episodes and editing the episodes, he's also spearheading the merchandise. So you're doing so much like, the, I mean, the children, like, how are they, by the way? How are the kids? Are they? <laughs> you ask from afar. Yeah, I drive um, home and you're playing in the trees with them and clothes <laughs> that you made from curtains. <laughs> Very funny. It's yeah, we're we're making this work and it's been rough, but we enjoy it at the same time. So. Yeah. And I think we've got the coolest John Adams shirt that I've ever seen. I so can't wait. Check that out. I want all of these on tank tops <laughs> and water bottles. That's yes. what I need in my life. Uh, next week, we are going to be back digging more into George Washington, specifically his origin story and the myths surrounding the person most responsible for making him who he was. Oh, I can't wait for this. This was kind of from uh, one of your blog posts, no? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I can't wait. Yeah. A lot of the times I take a look at authors, biographers who have uh, irresponsibly spread some things and maybe I'm going to point that mirror at myself. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I always like self-reflection. There you and go. The opportunity to grow that character arc yes and there's a lot growing on me right now well i'm not gonna ask details about that all right well (laughs) (laughs) thank you for plotting oh thank you see you soon no f words for you